2: podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with Caroline Hoyle from the Centre for Criminology at the University of Oxford about her global research on the death penalty, the problem in obtaining data that is classified as a state secret, and the importance of research in bringing about real change.
3: I'm Professor Carolyn Hoyle from the Centre for Criminology at the University of Oxford and I have been working there for more than two decades and have various different specialisms but um, most of my work today focuses on the death penalty And indeed, I have just set up the Death Penalty Research Unit, which I'm very excited about.
2: And can you tell me why there was a need to set up a Death Penalty Research Unit in the first place? And it's a very catchy uh, title for a unit.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm afraid we're going to have to go into the acronym of DPRU, I think, because it's a little bit wordy. Um, Well, I think... um, I think the real reason, for well, there are a number of reasons for setting up the unit. I mean, it's really about developing research of both theoretical and empirical and particularly policy relevant research on the death penalty worldwide. It's also, of course, about encouraging death penalty scholarship, uh, both at the graduate level and and, and also through uh, education events, research dissemination, etc.
2: Okay, trying to get sort of more people interested in actually studying it, do you mean?
3: Yes, because in this country, uh, there isn't so much of a focus on the death penalty. and, And the same is true across Europe, although there's still an interest in assisting other countries to reduce their use and to abolish.
2: Are we not interested in it because we don't have it anymore?
3: I think that probably is the case. Um, We haven't had it um, since 1965. And people must think, well, why get interested in this, despite the fact we're living in an increasingly global world? Um, So I think that although people are interested in criminal justice systems worldwide, they don't know an awful lot about the death penalty And I think what's happened is that scholarship on the death penalty has been dominated by Americans. Um, Not surprisingly, it's it's the leading democratic country that retains the death penalty. And it's important to research on the US and the legal and and the the empirical scholarship coming out of the US is excellent. But if you look at the numbers of how many people they execute and you look at the types of crimes that are uh, subject to the death penalty there... Looking at American scholarship can't really tell you anything about all the other countries in the world that retain and regularly use the death penalty. So setting up the DPRU is really an attempt to make the scholarship much more global. Okay. So we're going to focus on Asia, where 90% of the world's executions happen. Oh, really? Oh, yes. (laughs) Right. China uh, is responsible for a great many of those, but Southeast Asia... Uh, and East Asia uh, more widely too.
2: I know it's a grim question, but can you sort of briefly say, so China would execute people how, India would execute people how, without going into too much grim detail, but I think it's interesting. Well, the
3: methods of execution are always evolving as different countries try different methods or think they are being more civilised by trying different methods. Although there is no civilised way of killing people. I think that's what the example of America has shown with lethal injection. But So America mostly uses lethal injection, but now so does China and Vietnam.
2: Okay, but I think most people would think, and, and I still do, what about the chair? Does America not use the chair? Is it mainly the injection?
3: And mainly the injection. You can volunteer for electrocution in some states uh, in America, but most states, uh, your the default position would be lethal injection. And then there's hanging. So a lot of countries still hang, as, as we did before we abolished. Um, so there you have countries in Africa, such as Sudan, you have Syria, and you have many countries in Asia, such as Singapore, Pakistan, Japan. Um, uh bangladesh hangs people and and some of those countries in in the middle east iran iraq uh, egypt they, they all hang people um and some of those countries find it very difficult to get hangmen actually it's one of those jobs that people not surprisingly don't want to go for
2: yeah i could imagine you don't sort of go through university or through your educational career and maybe some of them aren't educated i i simply don't know but that would be an interesting thing to To touch on quickly, how does one become a hangman?
3: I actually don't know. What I can tell you is Sri Lanka is a country that is what we would call abolitionist de facto, so it hasn't executed anyone for decades, but the death penalty remains on the books. There's a number of countries around the world like that. And one of the problems uh, Sri Lanka has had recently is trying to recruit a hangman because the current administration have made noises that they want to bring back executions. But they've had this job advert out there for some time now and nobody's applying for it. Because hanging is quite a, a technical art. Uh, you have to get the rope at exactly the right length and that means you have to know the weight of the person um, so that you don't, uh, so so that the execution is as clean and as painless as is possible.
2: And a quick question: Are they done behind closed doors, or any public executions like we used to have back? I mean, sort of what hundred years ago?
3: Oh, uh, public displays of, of executions are very rare these days. Okay. but They can still happen in countries such as Iran, um, and they have been known to happen in China. Although I don't think for the past decade. Uh, so some countries in the Middle East uh, will still use public executions. Of course, uh, some countries that use uh, that, that uh, use stoning, for example, will have those uh, executions done in public, and they're usually for uh, what are deemed to be sexual offences, which in our books would not be offences at all, extramarital sex, things like this. But the main method would be, would be hanging. And, and some countries still uh, shoot people. So Belarus, which uh, you may know is the only country in Europe to still, if we count Belarus in Europe, and I think we should for this purpose, to still execute people. Uh, not many people, but it still does.
2: Okay, it's the only country left in Europe that executes people.
3: Yeah, Russia still has the death penalty on the books, but hasn't executed for a long time. So it's very much abolitionist, in my view.
2: And out of interest, when you say America still has the death penalty, it's certain states, isn't
3: it? It is, you're absolutely right. Yes. And of course, Saudi Arabia still beheads people, which is a particularly gruesome way of executing. And
2: can I ask and it's not because I have a sort of morbid fascination in this but I think it is interesting how and sort of where do they undertake these things?
3: Well normally in parts of the prisons so uh, executions are ordinarily done in the prisons yes Um, of course if you have um, a shooting you're not going to do that within a prison cell or within some execution unit, it's going to likely be outdoors. The problem with knowing the answers to some of these questions is that that there hasn't been research done in most of these countries that I've just mentioned. So we know almost nothing. We know the statistics, but even that is not very reliable. So if you look at the Amnesty International reports that come out every April, which um, bring together all the data they have available to them from the previous year. So the, the report for 2019 came out this year in in, in in April. They give a lot of statistics and they give some information that comes through media sources and NGOs working on the ground. Um, But in the same way as I can't get data to the cases so easily in some of these countries, neither can they. So we really do need research developed in those countries that use it the most because otherwise we are learning lessons from America that simply don't apply to other countries. Yeah. Um, And that's that's a shame, really, because if you think about America, which I think last year had 22 executions, And you compare it to Iran that had over 250 and Saudi Arabia that had in the 180s, I think. Iraq, again, was over 100 for crimes that would not be subject to capital punishment in America, where it's really only used for aggravated murder. You can't take the research from America and simply transfer it to to these other jurisdictions. It just is meaningless. So I think that's why it's really important to to have people doing empirical research in countries that are hard to access.
2: Okay, And when you say empirical research, for those of us who are sort of slight ignoramuses on um, the language of research, what does empirical research actually mean?
3: So empirical research means when you don't just take secondary sources. So you don't just take reports or data that are produced by organisations or newspaper articles, but you actually go out to the jurisdiction and you gather your own original data. So you might interview people, you might look through all the cases and and get the raw data out of the cases yourself. Uh, You might observe uh, systems so uh, the work you do for example it means going into prisons observing what happens talking to the people who work in those prisons uh, talking to the people who are incarcerated in those prisons and seeing and feeling and smelling and hearing everything in that jurisdiction that really is what I mean by doing empirical research so it can be both quantitative where you're collecting a lot of statistical data and making sense of that and or it can be more qualitative where you're interviewing etc
2: okay
3: so you could say what you do when you go into prisons is very much about doing empirical research you're you're not setting yourself up to, to 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 be an empiricist as such but you're collecting original data and that's how you learn about the prisons that you go to yeah and the same is true you know if i go to to Um, My recent visits across Southeast Asia are about talking to people, talking to lawyers who work in those cases, talking to consular officials who help people on on death row, etc. So it's collecting data that I can then make sense of and that I can trust in, uh, because there are countries such as China and Vietnam where the death penalty is a state secret. That means they won't tell us anything about their use or the administration of the death penalty in those countries.
2: Okay. And
3: that's why the Amnesty International Report won't give the actual figures for China anymore. It used to try to guess them from, from available sources, but now it just says thousands. So we know that China executes thousands of people each year But we don't know how many thousands. Do
2: you know the ages? Do you know how young? No, we know nothing because
3: it's a state secret. And that's why research in those jurisdictions, which is incredibly difficult, especially at the moment.
2: Can you ever see a time when countries like China, which I mean is a secretive country anyway, at the best of times. Mm. Can you ever see a time when they might um, sort of be more forthcoming with data?
3: Well, if you'd asked me this 10 years ago, I would have made a much more optimistic answer. So um, I went to China, I think, three times for discussions with both academics, lawyers, prosecutors, police officers, always in Beijing. Um, and at the time, they were talking the talk of human rights. They were saying that human rights was important for them. They were saying they wanted to move towards abolition, but the country was not yet ready. This is, by the way, a comment made by governments worldwide. It's a very common refrain. Yeah. And they were saying they wanted to engage with academics. So I have given lectures and papers to seminars of practitioners, professionals, academics on the death penalty, making very clear my position. Um, And then the invitations dried up. So the regime changed. And um, the new regime is much less receptive to research from overseas in general. It's not keen to talk about the death penalty. So I've had about five or six invitations to go to China in the last few years to talk about things like corruption and white collar crime, to which I respond, I know nothing really about those subjects. I will not come and talk about them. Um, now, they're inviting me knowing what my scholarship is on, so it's a very mixed message. Mm. So I, at the moment, feel much less confident about China than I did um, a number of years ago. Vietnam is really hard to get into. Um, it's, uh, it's quite a closed system like China. It follows China in many different regards. Um, so I would love to do research in Vietnam because my current research is interested in uh, the death penalty for those who are caught drug trafficking and drug smuggling in Southeast Asia, and Vietnam's very important for looking at that. So I've been looking at Malaysia and Indonesia, and, and and a little bit at Thailand. But without Vietnam, the the that that puzzle isn't quite resolved, if you like. So I would love to do research in Vietnam, but it's quite difficult, and it's quite difficult because when I work, I work. Um, in these countries with the uh, London-based charity, the Death Penalty Project. And when we go to these countries and we do this work on the ground, we engage with local partners, we engage with uh, NGOs, legal charities on the ground, and preferably with academics on the ground too, if they are there. There aren't that many academics working in these countries on this subject yet. now, when we do, that helps us to really get access to the data, to really produce data that we can make sense of because we work collaborative, collaboratively with them. But in Vietnam, there's no NGOs working on the ground who are prepared to talk about this because they're frightened. And I think now the same would be true in China. So Chinese academics working on the death penalty do so from Hong Kong or from other countries. Okay.
2: And with the death penalty research unit, the work has started and how long um, are you expecting the work to go on for?
3: So um, the answer to the second question is, forever right okay <laughs> in perpetuity but we'll see um so it started in the sense that we're officially launching it in october or november um the the covid has got in the way It spoiled play yeah. for all of us in many different ways and i was hoping to launch this earlier so i have at the moment the website which has been designed and it's up and running and some of the projects which are housed within the death penalty research unit are ongoing um so my current work in indonesia uh, the project we Just finished on Zimbabwe and the project ongoing in Taiwan are all I see housed within this unit because um, they're all work, excuse me, that I'm doing with my um, partner, the death penalty project. Um, So what I'm hoping to do with the unit, and one of the the main reasons, is not just to collect research and evidence and knowledge and and to disseminate that effectively in these different countries that we work in, um, but to build up scholarship in those other countries so there's a there's a certain amount of academic capacity building which is which is a name of the of the, the unit and to help to develop that scholarship worldwide and, and, and just have much more of a conversation about this issue in those countries where we know very little.
2: Is the idea also to train up researchers on the ground in those particular countries so that maybe you bring the expertise mm. of, you know, um, a prestigious university like Oxford and, you know, this is the way we do it. And we want to be able to educate you and empower you, not in a condescending way, or a, but, but is, is that no, a sort of no.
3: part of the strategy very much. Um, and I've, I've been doing that for the past decade anyway, because the work I did in India was with a great team uh, called Project 39A based in Delhi. But they were all lawyers with the legal skills. I couldn't teach them anything about the death penalty in, in India as far as the law was concerned, but they'd never done any empirical research. So we went out there and we trained them in doing interviews with judges. And uh, that was great fun and they went on to produce with us an excellent report on judges' opinions on the death penalty. We then did the same thing in Bangladesh. I then did the same thing in Indonesia, where I trained the researchers, went out there and spent time training them on the ground. And I've currently done that by um, online methods in Taiwan, because I couldn't get out there. Again, COVID stopped me going out there in the spring, so I trained them online. And so that's part of it. It's a part of training on the methods and then collaborating with them on writing outputs so that they get used to doing that kind of academic enterprise that we might take for granted here in the UK or in the US or in the rest of Europe, but that uh, they're not currently skilled up to do. So you have people who are fantastically clever very committed very energetic real sort of can-do people on the ground who just don't have yet those skills so i really see the unit as 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 developing uh, academic capacity worldwide um just like the death penalty project develops sort of legal capacity worldwide my, my role would be the academic side of things Um, And those two things work together because when we're doing this, we're working with legal practitioners, with NGOs, as well as academics. And bringing those people together on the ground makes for the best environment for challenging the administration of the death penalty in those countries. Because academics, I think academics used to work in, in silos so much of the time in this and in other countries. And I think what's happened in recent years is there's been real encouragement to engage with charities, to engage with policymakers, to engage with politicians. And we don't do that so easily and we perhaps don't do it so well. So I think what I'm trying to do in this work is to push those relationships or encourage those relationships to be much more fluid and interactive so that really if change is going to come about, it's, it, it's, it's going to come about through those collaborations in in the countries
2: okay and would you say the sort of holy grail i mean certainly i'm i'm interested in system change and not just changing things for this week or next week but to bring about some lasting change in my lifetime and um do you sort of feel the same in the fact that what good looks like sort of throughout this is maybe achieving certainly sort of policy influence but legislative change in these countries
3: very much so Yes I mean, an explicit aim of the unit is 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 abolition or failing that progressive restriction and systemic change as you say, and that's why we were so frustrated this spring because um I'd been working with the death Panther project on research in Zimbabwe on opinion formers, and we had interviewed uh forty two senior opinion formers in, in in Zimbabwe politicians policymakers, judges, etc. And 90% of them said they supported abolition. They didn't trust the criminal justice system. They were worried about wrongful convictions. They had little faith in deterrence theory. So they wanted, they actively wanted an act of parliament to bring about abolition. We sent this report with all our analysis to the government. And after a while, we got back the offer to write the forward for the report by the president of Zimbabwe. Oh, wow. And he did. He wrote the forward. And it basically said, I welcome this report. I welcome the, the, the messages for it, from it. And it's my sincere hope that in the future, Zimbabwe will formally abolish the death penalty. Now, when the president says that, we think that's very exciting. <clears throat> what happened then is the Minister of Justice contacted us and said, well, come in. I can't remember now when it was, but it was during lockdown, right near the beginning of lockdown. Ministry of Justice in Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe. And said, come out, have high level uh, table meetings with with government, with opposition, present your research. And we think this might make a difference. Now, for a researcher who wants to make a difference, have an impact, the idea that a report that I've worked on uh, could bring about abolition in Zimbabwe was terrifically exciting. And then it all got shelved because of Covid. Oh, no, that's that's on the back burner. We will go out. uh, You know, we're hoping the autumn, but we we can't be confident of that at the moment.
2: And he's likely to be in power still.
3: Well, this is the problem. This is the problem with working in countries where the politics are less than stable yeah you have a moment where you might be able to push an agenda for change and then suddenly you might have noticed in the news there have been demonstrations and problems on the streets in the past month or two and so what the political climate will be like by the time we can fly out there by the time restrictions are lifted and it's safe to do so is anyone's guess and that's the frustration of doing work of course in countries that are not quite as stable as we are used to here in europe
2: yeah, and when would you be hoping then? Sort of given COVID, the COVID chaos of 2020, when are you hoping to be able to get on a plane and get out onto the frontline?
3: Well, line? yes, I, I, I've got a number of trips that were that were postponed. Indonesia, where we have to launch an, another two reports, too, uh, is postponed. So it would be lovely if it was the autumn. I think realistically, it's going to be the spring, but I don't think it's possible to know at the moment. No. Um, So we'll have to see. I mean, that is that is my current frustration that I can't get to. And and, and Taiwan, too. I mean, we're we're, we're going ahead with our work in Taiwan and the interviews are going ahead. But everything is done remotely online. Um, But we'll see. Uh, We'll see how that pans out. It's all very frustrating.
2: And then helicoptering sort of up a bit out of the death penalty research unit and mm. looking at universities in general in our country over here and the role that they actually play and quite a significant role they play in impacting the criminal justice system in England and Wales. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's something that I've only recently started thinking about where the sort of universities intersect and the research they do in prisons and what positive
3: impact they are actually having? Mm. Well, I think it's, uh, you're right to say this is something that's uh, crept up on us. Um, I think when I was first starting out as an academic, you were measured by uh, the publications um, and by your teaching, of course. Um, So you had to be an excellent teacher and you had to produce good research that got published in in, uh, peer-reviewed journals or in in academic publishing uh, houses. Um, that has shifted, and it's partly shifted because of the funding we get from government. So most of the funding we get now from government is tied to a notion that this is public funding. You should be able to demonstrate that your research has a public, uh, has an impact on the public, has, an, has a positive effect on the public. The public could, of course, be conceived narrowly or widely. So it could be UK-focused, it could be international or somewhere in between. Um, So we are encouraged and have been encouraged for at least the last decade to try to think about how our research might have a positive impact. So... When we put together funding applications, that's one of the things we have to sell. And of course, once you've said you have to do something or you will do something and you've, you've got the money to do the research, you then have to actually do it, of course. And so we have become tooled up in, in engaging with practitioners, with policymakers, with, with government, etc. in order that when we plan our research, we plan in um, an impact agenda And that when we're actually doing our research, we're in constant or at least we're in dialogue with with, uh, other organisations outside of the academy in order to try to uh, make sure that what we produce and when we produce it and the ways in which we disseminate it will have the best impact it could possibly have. So the way this might uh, span out, if you you look at the work of some of my colleagues, um, Mary Bosworth engaging on on immigration detention centres, you know, she doesn't just float in and collect her data and float out again and write it up in a journal. She's in constant dialogue with the people who are in charge of these centres, the people who make the laws that the centres operate by, etc. And... At the other side of things, the work that I know you're familiar with of, of Shona Minson, again, is, is very much about challenging uh, those people responsible for sentencing in this country in order to make sure that they consider the needs of children. So her work always engages with practitioners and always tries to, to push an impact agenda.
2: Absolutely. And actually, um, for the listeners benefits, we have a podcast that I recorded with Dr. Shona Minson. And that's about the um, impact on the child of maternal imprisonment. So when the mother gets sent to prison, and what happens or doesn't happen to the child at that point. So I would urge listeners to find her pod mm-hmm. um, in our library. And it's a great example, isn't it? Of it is. I remember talking to Shona about it and saying, but this is the biggest piece of research that's been done in this area. And she said, well, yes, Edwina, it's the only piece <laughs> of research that's been done in this area. And, you know, if she hadn't done it, it would still be like the Wild West. I mean, there's a little bit of education and improvement coming. There's a long, long way to go. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Um, but you think, oh, my God, you know, this is like, you know, at the time when Shona did it, was it two years ago, 2018, 19? And you think, how is this possible? And this would have carried on being one of our grim little criminal justice sort of secrets had she not done her PhD on it,
3: which is shocking. I know. And, and you know, her, her own supervisor, Dr. Rachel Condry, she's done work on adolescent to parent violence. Again, this is a type of domestic abuse that we really didn't hear anything about before her work. We didn't talk about it much. And so that kind of research can raise the profile of a problem that many people are living with in secrecy or in, in silence. And once that problem is out there, once someone's shone a light on it through rigorous empirical research, then policymakers can no longer just ignore it. They have to then attend to it. Police have to think, are we responding appropriately in these cases? Prosecutors have to think, what is the appropriate response from us to these cases? So I think that we have a duty as academics to do this. And we we see it with, with scientists. I mean, The past few months, we've seen so much in the news about Oxford University uh, on the COVID front line as far as science is concerned. So I think we've always been aware that scientists in the university are doing things for the public good and that their research has very real benefits, whether it's a new vaccine or a new medication that might help mitigate symptoms of a disease. And we think about engineering or we might think about all those other sort of science uh, subjects economics economists are, are going to make a huge difference in the coming year unfortunately we need those now um, but they don't think so much about social scientists more generally uh, and I think we've been partly to blame for that so I, I welcome it I welcome that the change and it's something that I've built into my death penalty scholarship as, as a must you know I don't just want to do research that sits on a report in a it, on a shelf in my library, I want it to actually bring about change in the countries I work in, uh, or to help this government or Europe more generally bring about change in the countries they work in because again that 's another audience for the kind of work I do especially i 'm do, doing research on the moment on foreign nationals in Southeast Asia and the the uh, disadvantage and the discrimination against vulnerable foreign nationals and that 's the kind of work that the international community should care about because it's their nationals who are held on death rows in Southeast Asia for the types of offences which here might lead to a caution or or, uh, some much lesser penalty. So again, it's something that foreign nationals uh, attract the attention of those people in Europe who are responsible for giving consular support and advice to their nationals overseas. So you can find different ways of engaging with different publics. by focusing on, on the thing that matters most to them.
2: And out of interest, you may or <clears throat> may not know, the sort of research that you guys do from a university point of view, how and where does that intersect with, if at all, the researchers that sit within the Ministry of Justice? And how would you differentiate between the two?
3: Mm. So when I was first an academic and Professor Roger Hood was the director of the Centre of Criminology... There was quite a close relationship between the what was then the Home Office and, um, and us, and indeed other research units in the UK. So uh, they would ask us to do research on issues that were important to them. There would then be usually some negotiation about how much time it takes to do it, because I think people underestimate the, the duration of projects required to produce good data and they would pay for a certain amount of research to be done so our researchers in the in the center could could produce those data that were helpful to government the relationship changed somewhat um probably probably late 1990s early 2000s and i don't fully understand why it was partly i think academics withdrawing somewhat from that kind of work and wanting to do work that was uh, more independent, externally funded work from research councils, for example, uh, where the academic could set their own agenda and do things they they were more passionate about. And I think it was partly that the Home Office budget contracted dramatically so that they could no longer afford to... um, have researchers outside of the Home Office doing that work. And so they did in-house project. It is a costly business. People, I think, don't fully appreciate how much time goes into doing rigorous research and therefore how much money it costs um, in terms of paying researchers to actually go out there and gather data, to clean the data, to analyse the data, to write reports, to disseminate. And that's just, if you're talking about something straightforward like um, uh, doing interviews with people uh, I'm, I'm trying to get together money at the moment to do a big deterrent study in Indonesia and those things are fantastically expensive you need you know you need a lot of money because you need a massive amount of data in order to um, answer the the very difficult question of does the death penalty deter so um, I think the Home Office at the time and the Ministry of Justice now probably did not fully appreciate just what it takes to produce reliable data. And academics are um, rightly so uh, worried about producing anything that's not absolutely rigorous because we put our reputations on the line when we publish. So... um, so I think that relationship deteriorated partly because of uh, financial reasons and partly p- perhaps because of a change of administration. I think there was a period of time when experts were looked down on. And I wonder if that's still the case from some parts of government. So there's a, a scepticism that, that people can have this special kind of ex- uh, expertise or um, the special skills that academics know that you need in order to do this research and make it reliable. So uh, the relationship has changed.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit sceptical. I sort of think, you know, they often it's the way with many institutions. You want to celebrate the good and talk about that. But when it comes to the data that we all know is going to be slightly damning,
3: um, it's very hard to get hold of. <laughs> I wonder why. Yes, and I, I do worry about that. And I think I know of a couple of academics, and I won't name them, but who, who had produced reports for the Home Office that did not come up with uh, the results that Home Office were hoping to get, either showed that some policy they had in place was not working or, or, or was making things worse. And those reports were put on the shelf and didn't see the light of day. Now, if you're working hard as an academic and, and you have your own professional integrity to be mindful of, you do not want your research ending up on a shelf. Um, And indeed, for young academics, it's very bad news because we're measured by our outputs.
2: And isn't there a way, um, just sort of, I don't know, I suppose, thinking with my slightly more revolutionary hat on, um, isn't there a way just to publish that data anyway, whether people like it or not? Because quite frankly, you know, those are the areas where the injustices are happening and it is not okay to sort of silence it. So is it within an academic's um, sort of I don't know, is is it worth their while, quite frankly, just sort of saying, well, you don't want it published, but it's in the public interest, so therefore I'll find a way.
3: I think that would depend on the contract. So, no research will be done without a contract right. between the funder and the, uh, and the academic. And while, if we get research from the research councils or, or from a leading charity, uh, you know, the Leverhulme Trust and, and, and the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, they're great people to, to, to fund our research, as, of course, is the Economic and Social Research Council. The money that comes from those bodies um, comes without any ties. I mean, you, you have to produce the research that you promised to produce if you go out there and do something completely different then you're you're, you're in breach of the contract you have signed with the with the funding body but once you have done the research you said you would do if the data produced go in completely a different direction than anyone anticipated that's fine you publish it You, you make sense of it With the Home Office, though, I suspect that what might have been happening is that the contracts made clear that the data were the intellectual property of the Home Office, not of the academic. And I think many years ago, academics were perhaps a bit naive about this and signed these contracts, not knowing that they might have challenged them. We now have many more lawyers working within universities on intellectual property issues who would not let us do that anymore. So again, that might be Um, one of the reasons why uh, the relationship is not quite as close as it used to be, because we wouldn't sign a contract that said we had no um, ownership of that data. But if they did sign a contract like that, and then they published the data when the Home Office didn't want it published, then yes, they would have been in breach of contract, and that's a legal issue. So again, yes, Could could a researcher do it and just say to hell with it? Perhaps they could, but their career might suffer because of that so it was difficult and I think those difficulties really got in the way of what was an important and and for a while a helpful relationship but I don't think any academic wanted to spend all their time doing that work for the home office either and it's better I think really if the the research funding comes from an independent source and still gets to look at the data that the Home Office would be interested in. But I don't know how often that happens these days.
2: Yeah. The other thing I would say is that if there's any philanthropists listening, it's such an interesting area to, in order to give philanthropically and to be able to get things off the ground, get research done. Small charities find it exceptionally difficult to fund research. And often they're told that they have to produce the research in order for them to be able to operate in certain areas and prisons. Um, so if anyone is interested in that side of life, then um, it's a great area to to give money to certainly from my my
3: perspective it is i mean it's it what's been i talked before about my own personal COVID (laughs) frustrations not being able to travel but one of the things that happened to my partner organization the death penalty project they they have been getting really generous funding from places like the foreign and commonwealth office and, and other sources but their funding is starting to dry up because people have moved funding towards covid related issues now i'm not unsympathetic to that obviously you know we have a global pandemic crisis at the moment um but for those charities that rely on um uh, donations on funding uh, to do core business to to train judges in other places to train lawyers to to work on cases and give pro bono litigation work that actually gets people off death row You know, they need the money. Researchers need the money to do the research.
2: And if listeners were particularly interested in the death penalty and finding out more, whether it's about your work or whether it's about America, could you sort of steer them um, to some places where they might start looking? It's
3: quite difficult. I mean, I, I, I have for the past um, couple of decades, written a book, an OUP book with Roger Hood. And it covers the whole of the world and every issue on the death penalty. It's published by Oxford University Press. And the last edition was 2015. But it's a big, heavy, expensive book. And as I said before, there's really not, uh, pop from academic reports, I mean the Death Penalty Project has lots of really good reports on its website and certainly some of the work I've been doing on public opinion and, and elite opinion work and wrongful convictions can be found in very neat little pithy reports on their website, so I'd certainly recommend people look at that. And also they have a range of cases that they've worked on where you find out about individuals who are on death row, who, who through their litigation have got off death row and, and, you know, the hundreds of lives that have been saved because of the cases. So that's an interesting resource. Um, people interested in the death penalty in America, if they're not wanting something particularly academic, I would recommend Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy which has recently been made into a film, which I haven't seen the film, so I can't recommend it, but I'm sure it's very good. But the book is absolutely excellent, and it'll tell you about his journey, but it will also tell you um, quite a lot about the death penalty and how the administration works there.
2: Yeah, and there's also a charity called Reprieve, isn't there? If you visit the Reprieve website, we'll be putting all this in the footnotes that um, accompany the podcast. And then if people are interested in the death penalty research unit, Caroline, and sort of Mm. following your work the best place to go is to the
3: well if they go onto the criminology website at oxford so if you just you know go onto that website which is a law faculty website you will find the death penalty research unit there but i've actually tried this morning googling death penalty research unit oxford and it goes straight to it so good old google works for that and it does mention you know the countries we work in who we work with the work we're planning to do um in the Middle East and Asia on mapping foreign nationals is not yet on there, but will be in the next week. So um, yes, there's lots of information on that and, and the projects we hope to do on deterrence. So certainly, uh, and more, more work will be built up on that as well over the coming weeks
2: fantastic well caroline thank you so much for your time good luck with your travels i hope that you manage to get on a plane sometime soon i hope we all manage to get on a plane sometime soon um but thank you so much for coming on the podcast today it's been fascinating absolute
3: pleasure thank you
1: links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below if you enjoyed listening we would love it if you would subscribe Also, rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. Ad-Free Listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad-free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad-free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.